Hey Wellspring, want to welcome you into my basement for Easter morning. This is my prayer room, my athletic director's office, and I'm glad to have you with me on this Easter morning. Welcome. Now, if you got kids in the house and you want to give them something to do, uh, Trish, who is our kids director, has uh, does a, a reading of the scriptures, and there's a video below you can click on, maybe put on a separate screen, then you can have a little focus time if you want. Also, there's some sermon notes that are age-appropriate for kids. If you want to check those out, awesome, do so. All right, so uh, a few people have asked me over the last week, like, how can we be celebrating Easter in such a time as this, right? In the shadow of COVID-19, this idea of like, so Easter is supposed to be like big gatherings and happy and exciting and COVID-19 sheltering in place doesn't feel that way, especially as the days and weeks pass. But as I've reflected on the Easter message, as I've sat in the scripture, actually I've come to the total opposite conclusion that I actually think Easter and the message of Easter is written specifically for a time such as this. That I actually think the Easter message speaks even more powerfully into times of confusion, into times when we're thrown off, into times of sadness and despair and loss, even more than times of stability, times of predictability and comfort. The University of Copenhagen actually did a study in the last few weeks. And what they found was this. Uh, as they were sort of looking at different Google searches. And one in particular stood out to them. So as the, the number of COVID-19, uh, as the virus spread, uh, and every 80,000 people in the world that uh, got COVID-19, what they found was the number of people searching for prayer doubled on the internet. People are looking for hope now more than ever. Now, if you're not much of a churchgoer and you're wondering, what does the Easter bunny have to do with times of hope or times of trouble? Good question. Well, the truth is, uh, right, actually, Easter is not really about the Easter bunny. It's about Jesus rising from the grave. Right? The Easter bunny uh, kind of got connected, most people think, because uh, bunnies procreate really fast. So they were an ancient symbol of fertility. And because of that, right, they kind of ended up getting connected with Easter. But the real story of Easter is captured in the Gospels. One of the eyewitnesses that I want to focus on today is this guy named John. He's a friend of Jesus, and he writes his experience of the first Easter morning. This is how it begins. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. Now I want you to imagine this scene. I know you're on a couch probably in your house, and it's nice and comfy, but I want you to imagine this scene. You're a disciple. You've followed this teacher for three years. You've come to love him. You've expected, you've sort of attached all your hope to this person. And then one day, right, Rome, the big bully on the block, arrests him, tortures him, executes him. You watch him be crucified, wrapped up, and thrown into a tomb. And that's Friday. Saturday, you sit in your house. It's the Sabbath, right? God creates the world in six days, right? 
day one, day two, right? And then day seven, he rests. And that's your Sabbath, so you're resting on Saturday. You're resting in grief, probably in your home, with family, with friends. You're weeping. You're downtrodden. And Sunday morning, you wake up, and it's dark out. You grab your spices, and you don't bring the spices uh, just to sort of smell along the way. You bring them because you're going to put them on Jesus' dead body because you think at this point it's probably started to smell. So you bring your spices on this long, lonely walk in the dark to the tomb where Jesus is laid. And you arrive, right, and the stone has been moved away. And what do you do? Well, we know what Mary Magdalene does, right? She runs. There's no 911, right? There's, there's no cell phones. She runs. Now, Mary Magdalene, right? There's a few Marys in the story of the Gospels, right? There's Mary, the mother of Jesus. There's Mary and Martha, right? Her brother or sisters of Lazarus. And then there's Mary Magdalene, who's featured in Luke's Gospel. She's a woman who has seven demons or evil spirits that Jesus frees her from and she gives her life to be with Jesus because he has set her free. She comes on the tomb. She goes to love him. She finds, right, the rock has been moved. So what does she do, right? She runs back to tell her friends what is going on. That's part one of the Easter story, right? So this is part one. Mary, right, goes to the tomb and she walks to the tomb and finds it empty. Which brings us to part two. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Right? Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Right then, Peter came along beside him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They did still not understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. All right, so... Mary, right, walks to the tomb, finds it open, runs back, right? Then the disciples run back, and there's this unnamed disciple, likely John, who's the author of this gospel, and Peter. John's faster than Peter, so he gets there first. When he gets there, he looks at some of the evidence. He takes like a magnifying glass on it, and he's paying attention to what is on the ground. Peter gets there second, and he just like rushes straight in. Now, I want to pay attention kind of like John did for a second, right? The unnamed disciple. He pays attention to the evidence, right? Verses 6 and 7, what do we see, right? There's this sort of language about linens and cloth and all this. Now, I just want to say quickly, right? If someone stole the body or if someone took the body, why would they unwrap Jesus, right? It doesn't make any sense, right? If you wanted to take a dead body, you would not unwrap it and then touch the skin, right? And they'd be flopping all over the place, right? You'd want to keep it tight, right? You'd keep the person wrapped up. Moreover, N.T. Wright has this great observation. He's a British theologian. He says this, The single cloth, the napkin that had been around Jesus' head, isn't with the others. 
It's in a place by itself. Someone having unwrapped the body, a complicated task in itself, has gone to the trouble of laying out the clothes to create an effect. It looks as though the body wasn't picked up and unwrapped, but just disappeared, leaving the empty clothes like a collapsed balloon when the air has gone out. Right? So the, the clothes, the linens are laying there as if Jesus was still laying there, but his body is gone. Right? No one who stole the body would do that. Moreover, we can see that John is actually trying to create a contrast here with chapter 11. Chapter 11 in the Gospel of John is about Lazarus being raised from the dead. And what do we know, right? Jesus says, I am the resurrection of the life. And then what does he do, right? He raises Lazarus from the dead. And what does Lazarus do? He walks out sort of in all of his grave clothes and he needs to get unwrapped by friends. Not so with Jesus. Right? John says that this unnamed disciples sees and believes. He looks at the evidence of the grave clothes and he thinks something is going on. He doesn't just see linens, but he also sees their significance. And then he says, right, what do the disciples do? They go home. We don't know if they ponder or chat. We're not sure what happens next. Right? This is part two. Part two, right? You have running disciples, right? And then you have uh, John in particular, the disciple who is unnamed, right? He's looking for evidence. That's a magnifying glass in case you were curious. Uh, they're looking for evidence, which then brings us to part three. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, woman, why are you crying? Right? They have taken my Lord away, she said. I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell him, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. All right, so part three begins with Mary weeping outside the tomb. She's run to the disciples, now she's come back, and she's weeping there. Now, we don't know what she has been told by the unnamed disciple, right? He, said, he saw and believed based on what he saw with the linens. We don't know what they told her. What we know is that she is outside the tomb and she's crying. And as she's sitting there, it seems like she takes a peek inside the tomb. And what does she see? She sees two angels. Now, I want you to think of a time in Scripture. You know, if you're sort of a, a Bible nerd like me, think of a time in Scripture when someone has ever seen an angel and not like been afraid or not like had entirety of their brain and focus on that angel. I can't think of one. But it happens here, right? Mary sees the angel, and then out of the corner of her eye, she sees something. So she turns. She's like, hold on a second, angel. And she turns, 
right? And then Jesus, but she doesn't know it's Jesus, says to her, you know, why are you crying? Now she thinks he's the gardener. I'm not sure why. Maybe the only person she could imagine being out at, at, in the early morning at that time during Passover week is a gardener. But she thinks it's the gardener. And then what? He says one thing. Her name, he says, Mary. Right? And she runs to him. In the 10th chapter uh, of John, Jesus tells a parable. He says uh, that his sheep know his name. When he calls them, they recognize his voice. She, he, Jesus says, Mary, and she recognizes Jesus' voice. And what does he tell her to do? He tells her to go. Right? Tell the others what you have seen. Right? And this is part three. Right? Mary is now back at the empty tomb. Right? She's at the tomb. And what does she see? Right? She sees it's my best attempt at a shovel. <laughs> she sees a gardener. Mary sees a gardener. Now, I'd like to unpack for one second this idea of the gardener, because I actually think it has a lot of significance. Now, to understand this gardener reference, uh, we need to go back to the very beginning of Genesis. So the very beginning of Genesis, right, what do we have? We have six days of creation. The seventh day is rest, right? So Mary, on the first day of the week, on Sunday morning, she goes out to Jesus. And who does she find there? A gardener. Now let's go back again to the first book of the Bible, to Genesis. Adam is the first creation, first human made by God, right? What is his job? Remember, He's, he is assigned to tend and keep the Garden of Eden. What does that make him? A gardener. So John is making a theological statement here, right? Jesus is the new Adam initiating the new creation on the first day of creation, right? This is the eighth day, the first day of the week. And John is tapping here into a Hebrew longing, right? Throughout the scriptures, there's this longing of the Hebrew people for God to come to earth and establish his kingdom, to remove sin and evil and injustice, all these wrong things, right? There's longing for that. And what John is saying here is that Jesus' resurrection is the first day of this new creation when God is at work in a new and beautiful way and will be really culminated or finalized when Jesus returns. Right? That's the witness of the New Testament. Right? And John isn't the first person to pick up on this Jesus-Adam thing. Consider what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says this. This is 21 and 22. For since death came through one man, through Adam, the resurrection of dead comes through a man, Jesus. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Right? Because Jesus is raised from the dead, everyone who trusts in Jesus is now invited or able to be raised from the dead to eternal life. But too often we think in terms of eternal life, we think of in terms of like Renaissance paintings with uh, toddlers strumming guitars in the clouds, and we think, that doesn't sound very compelling. But that's not the biblical picture. Right? The biblical picture is of a new creation, like Eden, but better. 
right? What do you find in Eden? You find Adam and Eve, right? They're naked and unafraid together, naked and unashamed. There's no sin and evil and strife dividing them. Also, their relationship to creation is not messed up in any way. Their relationship with God is not divided. So I'd like you to imagine, imagine that moment when you're super connected to family or friends or whatever, like that joyous moment. That is what it will be like in the new creation when there is no division between us. Imagine that beautiful moment when you're on a mountain or looking at an incredible view. And you have this sense of, man, this is so beautiful, incredible, amazing. That is what it will be like in the new creation. Or that moment when you connect with God and experience His peace, this connection that you can't explain that is just unbelievably satisfying. That is what it will be like in the new creation. Right? That is John's, John's witness and the witness of the New Testament. That through Jesus' resurrection on Easter, we are able to be resurrected with Jesus and participate in the new creation with Him. So what does that then mean for us as we live under the shadow of COVID-19 right now, this Easter, today? I think two things I want to highlight. First is this. I think Jesus' resurrection offers us profound hope in the face of death. Jesus was dead, and now he is alive. This last week, Uh, President Trump and many others have said, you know, as many as 100,000 to 200,000 people could die in the United States alone. Let alone all kinds of other cities in the world where population density and water access, all those things are not available. Easter offers us hope in the face of death. Paul will say, right, death has lost its sting because it's lost its finality because Jesus rose from the dead. Right? If we trust in Jesus, we are invited, we are able to participate in the life of Jesus, enjoy the new creation. Death has lost its sting. Right? There is hope in the face of death. I had a phone call a few weeks ago, a few months ago at this point actually, uh, with a friend of mine, and it was both really hard and incredibly inspiring. My friend told me at the beginning of the call that he had been diagnosed with a brain tumor that was inoperable and that he would die in a few months. And the thing is, right, right off the bat, he told me, yeah, I'm really sad because I won't get to see my grandkids grow up in the way that he had hoped. Right? He had just retired and he was excited to spend more time with them. And he grieved that. He was sad. But it was also an incredibly inspiring conversation because my friend was not afraid. He was so aware that death was just the beginning of a new and beautiful connection to Jesus. Right? Through death, he was going to experience a new and profound life in the new creation with God. So he was not afraid. He reminded me of Paul. Paul sits in a jail cell as he's writing to the Philippians. And almost certain he is going to get executed. And this is what he writes, Philippians 21 to 23. For to me, to live is Christ, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. It's actually gain to die. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. 
My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is better, far better. Right? For the Christian, for the one who has hope in Jesus, we know that through the resurrection, we are invited into a fellowship, a connection with Jesus that is unbelievable, a new creation that is so much better than this world. Like Paul, my friend, in the face of death, had hope because he knew that the best was yet to come. The best was yet to come. Easter offers us hope in the face of death. It also offers us hope in the face of life. Right? Jesus' resurrection isn't just about life after death. N.T. Wright, who's this famous theologian, he says this, Jesus' resurrection is as much about life after death as life after life after death. Right? Because life after death uh, is the life we lead right now, right? The life after the life after death. Because we know that Jesus has been raised from the grave, we know that we can live with hope. First Peter, uh, so Peter wrote a letter called First Peter to a people that were struggling, and he says that we are born into a living a hope, a hope that endures wars and famines, cancer and COVID-19. This isn't just blind optimism. This isn't just glass half full thinking, right? This is the surprising hope of Easter morning that defines the hope that we carry with us into everyday life, right? This is the hope of a crucified Savior walking out of a tomb. This is the hope of Mary Magdalene as she comes depressed on Sunday morning in the dark and finds that her Lord has been risen from the grave. This is a surprising hope. And this matters in the midst of life. There's all kinds of psychological studies on hope and its import in enduring uh, in resilience. Viktor Frankl, uh, he's a Jewish psychologist and he was also in the Nazi death camps. He wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And what he found was that people that survived, the people that survived Nazi death camps were the people that held on to hope. On Easter morning, Jesus shows us that we are a people that have hope no matter what is going on in the midst of life. And if you're sitting at your home and you're worried, you're stressed, you're grieving, you're uncomfortable, you're lonely, imagine how the disciples, Mary Magdalene and others, felt on that Saturday. They're in their home, hope is lost, time is struggle, grief is real. And then the surprising hope of the resurrection comes the next morning. As an Easter-shaped people, we are a people that carry this living hope wherever we go. There is hope in the face of death. There is hope in the face of life. Now, for the cynical among us, I also just want to sort of step back and just acknowledge, for some of us, as we come in on Easter, we're a little cynical about all this, and we're like, come on, really? Isn't that just a fable or a metaphor? Let me just give you three reasons why I think you should really take this seriously. The first is this. What we see in the gospel accounts, what we see in the historical documents, is the disciples bail on Jesus, right? Peter denies him. All of them flee him. But what we also see in the historical documents is that within a few years, most of them will also die for him. How do you explain this transformation from cowardly, 
fleeing disciples to brave, life-sacrificing disciples without the resurrection. Right? If they're just making it up, they're not going to die. Point one, the resurrection happened because these, these disciples are transformed by the hope of the resurrection. Two, notice that the first people to witness the resurrection, the first person is Mary Magdalene. It's a woman. Did you know that in the first century, women could not be witnesses in the court of law? So if you're going to write a historical document and you're going to manufacture it, you're going to make it up, you're not going to have a woman be the first witness because already it's going to be dismissed. This has the ring of historical truth because right, they're recording what is true, not as what is going to get them the best audience. Right? Having a woman discover the tomb has the ring of historical truth. Three, if you were going to write a story to convince people even though it didn't happen, right, that Jesus was raised from the dead. You would not paint the apostles and the disciples as these fleeing, cowardly, confused, unbelieving gang of people. Right? The only reason you would do that is because that's actually true, and then they're transformed through the resurrection. Right? If you're going to make it up, you wouldn't paint them that way. You would paint them as heroes. You would paint them as these incredible, unbelievably faithful people, but they didn't. And they wouldn't, right? Because it wasn't true. The resurrection happened. The resurrection happened. Jesus is alive. Jesus' resurrection gives us hope in the face of death. It gives us hope in the face of life. The resurrection is super important as we live in the shadow of COVID-19 because Jesus is alive and we can be a people of hope. And as we transition into one last song of worship, I just want to invite you this morning to consider what is the word of hope that God has for you that he's inviting you to hold on to, to cling to in the midst of life, in the midst of living under the shadow of COVID-19. I'm going to give you 60 seconds of silence. I'm going to pray and then it's going to go to 60 seconds and then we're going to jump uh, to uh, Chuck and Jessica leading us in a song in their home. For now, I just want to pray for you. And as I pray, I just want you to consider what is God's word of hope that he wants you to cling to, and then you'll have 60 seconds of silence. God, I just, I thank you that you never forsake us. God, I thank you that you are willing to go to the cross in order to love us and restore us to initiate this new creation that we get to enjoy. God, I thank you that you are alive right now, Jesus. You are alive, Jesus. You are good and you are amazing and you hold the power of life and death. May we live into the hope that you offer in this season in the shadow of COVID-19. To you be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen.